If you do have your Bibles, can you please turn to Luke chapter 6. This morning's sermon will be found in Luke's chapter, sorry, 7. Not 6, 7. Luke 7, beginning at verse 24. And uh, I must admit, before I get going this morning, that this passage presented me several difficulties, and I felt so in over my head uh, throughout it and struggled dearly with it. It makes several statements that were very difficult to figure out exactly what it means, and even there's a couple still I don't have any idea what they mean. And so, thankfully, we're here now this morning, and um, there's still some really good meat here. So before we begin, let's pray. Father, we come before you, and as desperate, needy creatures and look to you for all our needs. For, Father, for we know that apart from your Spirit working in us, we can't see, we can't understand, we don't get it. So much of life we don't understand. And, Father, you know where everybody's at this morning. You know what's going on in everyone's life. And I ask that you would work by your Spirit through your Word in all of our hearts and minds and that we would, we would know and understand you better, know and understand Jesus better, and know and understand ourselves better, so that we would be done with ourselves and completely dependent upon Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, the passage begins, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 24. This is just after Jesus had uh, sent John's disciples back to him uh, with a message for John because John was wondering whether Jesus was actually the Messiah. And so it says in verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus, he turns to the crowd and begins to speak to them concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A a prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating and, and no, uh, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her children." Do you ever consider how being maligned, being misunderstood, and being hated usually comes with being a Christian, 
being identified with the people of God. Yet, one of the glories of sticking your neck out and stating the truth of the gospel is that you identify yourself with Jesus. And as you do, you, you usually receive similar misunderstandings, but also similar rewards. John's whole ministry was one, John the Baptist, of one preparing people's hearts. And John stuck his neck out. John was misunderstood. John was maligned. And Jesus describes John's ministry as the man God raised up to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. God raised John up to do something spectacular. To do something that no one else in the history of the world will ever be called to do. And that was to be this singular voice of the one crying in the wilderness. This voice from God to prepare the people of God. And this is, he tells his ministry, he says, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face. This is God saying, The your of Jesus' face, who prepare your way before you. This is the one, his whole ministry was to come and prepare the people's hearts. And in order to do that, to prepare the way, he didn't have them clean up their house. Say, get your house ready. Get it all in order. Make sure your yard's nice and tidy and mow the grass and take care of everything. Fix up, he says, don't fix up the temple. He doesn't say, you know, get the right clothes on. Ladies, get your makeup on. Guys, look tight, look clean because the Lord is coming. Let's get it all in order, all right? Typically, when we have guests coming and we prepare for our guests, what do we do? We get those things in order. John didn't do that. He went right for the heart of the issue, which is right here. He wasn't concerned about food, drink, and clothing or anything like that. In order to prepare the way of the Lord, he did not go after trifles. He went after what mattered. He preached straight to the heart. This is why Jesus says in verse 24 of this Luke 7, What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man dressed in soft clothing? The obvious answer was no. This whole analogy of a reed shaken by the wind is like tossed to and fro. Some weak little noodle that's wherever the wind blows. It, it, so if the wind's blowing this way, it bends this way. If it blows this way, it's bend this way. He's not tossed to or fro by every wind of doctrine. Basically what he's saying, do you go out and expect some weak noodle out there? No, you went out and you saw a man, a thunderous man, who declared it straight down the middle. And they all go, oh yeah, <laughs> we've never heard somebody like this. He was tough as nails, and he was dressed in camel hair. He was not tuned up, finely dressed. No, he, he was a man on a mission. And what did he do? He was all about one mission, one thing. He was about preparing God's people to meet the coming Messiah. That's it. That's what consumed him. And in John's mind, he thought the Messiah was going to come in judgment and anyone who had not repented was going to be done for. That's what he thought. He was like a man who knew a tornado was coming to hit the trailer park, and he's out screaming at everybody to get out and hit, for, hit cover. He was serious. He knew trouble was coming. But he didn't know exactly how the plan of God would work out, the plan of redemption. And he knew that he knew God, the Messiah, was going to come and he would bring judgment. But he didn't know that he would come and what he would do at first and how this would all unfold. He, didn't, he, did, he, he thought, actually, the Messiah, when he come, would be like scorched earth. He was to come blazing, both guns 
a barrel and people under judgment, and it was going to be wild. And how do we know that? Well, just listen to some of the context of his message. We heard this morning in Matthew chapter 3, this is what he says. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Do you realize who these people were? These were the elite, the religious elite of their day, the mucky mucks, the high-end people, those who everybody esteemed, the most highly esteemed people in their culture that everybody revered and looked up to. You bag or group or cluster of snakes. Nice. How to win friends and influence people. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe, listen to this language, think of how, how John's thinking of the coming Messiah. Even now, The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What was John thinking? Messiah is going to show up and he is cleaning house. Get ready. You better repent. You better turn to God because you're in trouble. He clearly thought Jesus was going to give a whooping and take no prisoners. Clearly. John was not messing around. He was not. He knew this was serious business and in his mind... People, could you imagine if you knew you've got 10 minutes, you've got to get ready, because when he shows up, if you're not, it's over. So he had that kind of urgency in him. He didn't care who you were or what status you held in society. It didn't matter. He was a man on a mission, and he was preparing God's people to meet the Messiah. And John knew that if the Lord were to return and God's people did not repent and get cleansed with the water of God from their sins, they would have no hope. None. They couldn't be, at, they couldn't be following after other gods. They couldn't be serving other things. They couldn't be trifling around and messing around and having God over here, but all their little idols and everything else they loved over here and just said, yeah, whatever, we're the people of Abraham. He knew that they could not just rest on the fact that, hey, we're children of Abraham. All is good. But meanwhile, they're trifling around with all kinds of sin. That wouldn't do. And so the only thing that would prepare the heart would take these crusty hearts, these hard-hearted hearts, was the jackhammer of God's word. And he he was a battering ram going after these people. A heart is not prepared to receive the grace of God, until it first knows and understands the judgment of God. You and I will not turn to our Savior until we first understand we need to be saved. 
Like, why? We might turn to Jesus if, you know, people, people today will turn to him. If, if he kind of can add something to your life, here's my life. And if Jesus can be like an addition, if like, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven when you die. Hey, I'm selling free tickets. Anybody want one? Sure. Why not? I can add him in. I can throw Jesus on top of everything else. I can bring him into the mix. What would it hurt, right? So if we present a gospel where Jesus is just, what he is, is he's just somebody who just helps us out, who comes along and gives us a ticket to heaven. And yeah, there's, there's millions of people who've believed and prayed the prayer because that's what was offered to them. Do you want to go to heaven when you die? Raise your hand. Oh, yeah. All of us, we want to go to heaven when we die. What do you have to do? Just pray with me. And we'll receive Jesus. So we receive Jesus. We've got all our other idols, all our other gods, all the other things we love. We, we don't see any reason why we should turn from them. We're just adding Jesus on and we go to heaven when we die. I'm in. Count me in. No problem. Well, John did not preach that kind of gospel. He knew that God calls his people to 100% loyalty. And so... In order to prepare a heart to be turned to the Lord, we as people, we first and fundamentally need to see ourselves as sinners without any hope, any hope, apart from God's grace. That's fundamental. We, we turn to Jesus with our whole hearts, knowing that I'm done. I don't have anything. I've, I've, I've looked for my own righteousness. I've looked around. I've see, I see who I'm like. I see what I do. And that's even what Paul tells us. But the whole purpose of the law was like, say, hello, do you, are you getting it? You're not good. You're not righteous. Not even a little bit? No. Not even a little bit. You have to come to the place where you see and you understand yourself. With, I'm lost. I am L-O-S-T, lost, double underscore. I am doomed. I am a sinner, up, down, and sideways. When it comes to God's law, when you look at it, when you compare my heart to it, guess what I've done? I've sinned. I've not loved the Lord my God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, no, let me tell you, I've done, I've done anything but. And we have to see and we have to understand that even as, as, as people, do you know what we're t- given to? We're given to love and to lust the things of this world. Just think of our own hearts, how easily they go towards loving other things more than God. You can love your work, you can love your toys, you can love your activities, you can love all the blessings of God, and you, and you cherish these things. And sure, you might say, thanks God, and indeed you love them more than you love Him. Isn't that easy to do? Isn't it easy to like rejoice in his gifts more than rejoice in him, the giver of those gifts? Even come here this morning, we sing words, and our minds can be on the things that God has given to us. God has blessed us with so many things, and we can think about what, we gotta, what we're going to eat this afternoon, what we're going to do, who we're going to hang out with, and all these things are mine. And meanwhile, our lips are doing this, and we're singing songs about God's praise. But our hearts are far from him. Oh, yeah, yeah, where am I at again? Like, what's going on here? And that's what our hearts are like. And John, John the Baptist was preparing God's people to meet God because they, he knows that we can't have cherished little idols in our hearts. We can't love the things of this world and the things in it more than we love God. 
And so we have to, if we're, if we're to cling to Jesus, we have to be done with the other stuff. He has to be our only hope, our only salvation, our only help. I like how the Heidelberg Confession answers the question to whether or not Jesus is our Savior if we look to ourselves, to saints, or anyone else besides him, or anything else, or anywhere else besides him. It says, is Jesus your Savior? The answer to the question, no. For although they boast of him in words, they deny him as the only Savior. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or he is a complete Savior And trusting anything else in addition to him is a denial of this fact. I love how that clearly puts it. Jesus has to completely and utterly be our Savior, our only hope. We can't add him to anything else. We can't can't look at our lives and say, you know, I've been a pretty good person, and I sure hope Jesus kind of shores up what I'm lacking. Helps me out a little bit. We can't, we can't look to other things, other people, or anything else to, to save us in any way. And so the heart needs to be exposed to all those things that we love and lust after, and so that we would, we would gladly turn from them and we say, no, Jesus and Jesus alone is my salvation and my only hope. This was John's ministry. John came preparing the hearts of God's people, and he went after them after all the things that they loved and trusted besides God, and say, no, you love and trust God above all things. Now, this, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean he's calling them to reject everything in the world. He's just, as we always have to do, examine our hearts to know whether the things of this world, people and and stuff, have gotten our hearts, our passion, our love, and drawn us away from the one true God. And so now all of he's just one thing among many. And it's something we always have to be on guard for. And because of this ministry, Jesus says that John was, was great, the greatest among women. But he wasn't the greatest. If you look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is the, one of those passages that just befuddled me. And I've, I've always wondered as I looked at this, and as I go through this, please bear with me, because I'm going to just try to explain what I think he's talking about here, because upon first reading it, it seems like even the, the bozo, the baseline bonehead who, as it says in Corinthians, escapes as if through fire and gets into heaven, that he's greater than John the Baptist. And it's like, that caused my head to scratch my head and say, how could this be? Actually, some commentators believe that what he's say, this is what he's indeed saying because of how much greater the kingdom was going to be in comparison to, to what was prior. But it, is it really that much greater in the kingdom? And is the person, the base person, the lowest, that lowest, like in the think, when we think of lowest, we think of that, that person who barely makes it kind of guy, is that person better than John the Baptist? Well, I don't think so. I mean, it's hard to imagine that we're, that person's really much better than Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, John the Baptist, etc., all those saints. I can't understand why that would be the case. Because think about it. Sure, that we're no longer under the law with its ordinances, ceremonies, and sacrificial system. And the Spirit is poured out upon us like it wasn't poured out in the Old Testament. But 
Isn't Jesus still their Savior, still their King? Aren't they saved the same way by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, even though he was typified in the Old Covenant? Yes, of course they are. And at this point, we now get the the mystery of the gospel, but I think so do they at this point. Now it's revealed to them, and in fact, they're a little better in some ways because they're actually done with the sufferings of this world. They, they can now enter into their rest. So how would it be, the, how is it, if you think about it, how could the very base or the bottom of the level of those in the kingdom of God be better than John? We certainly don't want to undermine the glories of the new covenant, but surely having the blessings of the new covenant doesn't make you a better person. Does it? No. He's saying you're better than he is. That person's better. That, all it does is it makes us more blessed and privileged, not a better person. And no, one's, no one better born of a woman than John the Baptist, he says, yet the least in the kingdom is greater than he. So what is he saying? I think, well, some commentators that I agree with are saying that this, actually Jesus is referring to himself. For example, early church father Chrysostom says, By lesser or little, the Savior refers to himself as less than John in age and and according to the opinions of many. Thus then, among the sons of men, no prophet greater than John the Baptist has arisen. Yet, there is among you one lesser in age and perhaps in public estimation, who is in the kingdom of God, who is greater than he. And I think he's kind of getting at what what is truly Jesus is doing here. Because if you think of what Jesus goes on to say, he often turns us on our heads and says weird enigmatic statements that just kind of cause you to scratch your head. What are you talking about, Jesus? Because if you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus says, For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So the least is the greatest. And then in Luke 22, 25 through 27, he puts it this way. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. Rather, let the one who is the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader like the servant. The lesser, those who make themselves the least, will, become, will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. That's how it works. But here's the question. Who has made himself the least? What does Philippians 2 say? There we read about how Jesus, although being God himself, Lord himself, to, the, to become a man. He became a man and he died, not just a death, he died the most humble death of all, death on a cross. It says, therefore, what did God do? Because Jesus so humbled himself, made himself so small, so little, God highly exalted him above every name that is named, both in heaven and on earth. So the reason no one is greater than Jesus no one will be more highly exalted than Jesus, is because nobody is capable of lowering themselves lower than Jesus. No one is capable of becoming lesser in the kingdom of God than Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you want to be great, become the least. Become the servant of all. How have I arrived among you? I didn't come being served. I came to serve. He gets down. He washes his disciples' feet. This is God in the flesh down at the lowest part of society. Only the the slaves and the servants would do such a thing. And Jesus is down there washing their feet. 
Nobody humbled themselves greater than Jesus. Jesus was beaten and stripped, naked, bare, and exposed on a cross to die. The most humiliating death there is. This is the Son of God doing this. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus. Why? Because he became the least. He is the least. There's no one less than him. There's nobody who put, made themselves so low, who put themselves in that position. And likewise with us. This is how it works. This is how it's supposed to work. The greatest among us are to be those who, are the, who make themselves the least. Those who serve. You want to be great in the kingdom? What does Jesus say? You want to be great? A lot of us want to pursue greatness. Well, we think, if I want to be great, why don't you go after it? You make yourself great. You, that's, he says, that's how the Gentiles think. That's how unbelievers think. But in the kingdom, it's opposite. You become the least. You serve the most. You should be the one serving, serving, serving. You want to become great? Serve. Serve and give and give your life. And, and God will ensure that you're exalted. And we should be looking for who should be, who should be the greatest among us. Who should be the, the, the leaders among us? The greatest servants who give themselves most to the body. And this, this is why John, he says, John was great. The greatest among women, women uh, born of women, not among women. The greatest among those born of women, of a woman. And, and if you think of it, even John himself, why? Nobody gave themselves like John. Eats locusts and honey, lives in the wilderness, wears camel hair, and gets ridiculed his whole life while he proclaims this, prepares the way of Messiah, serving and giving of his life so that people would come into the kingdom and Jesus would be exalted. But yet Jesus goes way past John the Baptist. You want to talk lowering, no one's lowered themselves like Jesus. Jesus truly is the greatest because he made himself the least in the kingdom. He then goes on in verse 29 to say something I, have no, I don't know what he means. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm like, why would you declare God just? Um, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So having been baptized with the baptism of John, they declare God just. God is righteous. I don't know. Um, but anyway. Thankfully, it's not pivotal to the point being made here and uh, anyways you can say that the baptism of John perhaps they were grateful and thankful to God for it I don't know but we'll move on because I want us to see something here in verses 30 through 34 where Jesus wants to reveal something about John's ministry that's important for us even here today John's ministry was rejected by the religious elite if you look at verse 30, it says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not being baptized by him. And then Jesus, Jesus goes on to say, To what then shall we compare this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. This also was a, like, what is he talking about there? Scratch your head on that one. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. 
Okay. So what does that have to do with this generation? <laughs> These Pharisees. Well, apparently, this is a saying that was, the kids is a game that kids would play in the marketplace. And these kids would play this game where they, they say uh, they would play the, the flute for you, and the kids, the kids would dance. You know, kids love to play and dance. And, it, and so kids would actually, at, at, at weddings and funerals, kids would be used. They would be the weepers, and the da- the, they would bring joy, and they'd be dancing to bring festivity, and they'd be the ones mourning and weeping and, uh, in times of funerals. So it's like uh, basically... The kids, the little kids, we called to the kids, and the kids did the, they, they would play the game. We called to you, but you wouldn't. You've just been stubborn. You're, you're arrogant. You don't listen. You know, it's like as if, no, I am not going to do this. There's not a chance. I will not submit to John. I will not submit to his baptism. You can play your song, and I won't dance. You can, you can, you can play the dirge, and I won't weep. So go have your fun. I'm not going to listen to you. They're, they're unlike the little children who enter the kingdom. They're un, they, they're, they do not humble themselves and submit to the things of God. And they're totally confused. You're confused. This is the, the, these people, they don't understand even the ways of God. He says, he, he says he, listen to you guys, think of it. John the Baptist comes, he, he doesn't eat bread or drink wine, and, and, and he says he has a demon. Okay, then let me do the opposite. Jesus comes eating bread, drinking wine, and he says he's a glutton and a drunkard. Are you guys schizophrenic? You know, demon, drunkard. So, so it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter with these people. And the reason why is because these people, they are the elite. We're on top, and you are threatening, threatening what we have established. We are the ones whom the people respect. We are the ones who lead the people. We are the ones people listen to. We are the ones who have all the, all the trappings of the religion of, of Israel. We are the ones to be followed. And Jesus and John both said, really? You guys are hypocrites. You guys are whitewashed tombs. You guys, you guys shine up the outside and the inside is just full of pure corruptions. You guys are absolutely, you say one thing and do another. You guys are false. You guys are fake. You guys are phonies. And inside is nothing but rottenness. But on the outside, you look all nice. You, dry the, you wear the nice clothing. You style it all up. You make everything shine. You make everything look really good. And everybody's really impressed with your image because you have got a stellar image. Wow. So you want everybody to go wow at you and look at your life and say, I can't believe how righteous you are. I can't believe how holy you are. I can't believe you must really love God. You must really, you know, from, with all that show, with all that glitz, with all that, all that you're doing, man, you guys are to be esteemed. They, that's what they love. That's what they were after. They were after the praise of men. The religious elite... Because there's pressure. Do you realize within the church, this is all too common? We're way, too, way more concerned about the praise of men than the praise of God. We're way more concerned about the outside looking all nice and everybody sees an image. Because we want people to think certain ways about us. Just think about how much time we spend polishing the outside. And how little time we work on the inside. 
It doesn't really matter what's going on in our heart too often. Who cares what's happening in our heart? As long as the outside's all squeaky clean and everybody says, how are you guys doing? We're doing great. We've got a nice little family. Everything's good in our house. Everything's great. Everything's real good. Oh, really? And then you find out, it usually takes some time that, whoa, everything wasn't so good. Why did that, that whole family just blew up? Kids are a train wreck. Parents are divorced. Man, I grew up, I thought those, that, that family had it all together because that's what they tried to make you think all along, is they had it all together. And that is like hypocrisy at its worst. And it's, it's pressure to be hypocritical in the church because you might not be doing so well, but you don't want the others to know that or think of that. Just think of Facebook right now. This is the most hypocritical place in the world because everybody, everybody in there is like they're trying to portray an image and the image is great, life's sweet. You know, and I understand. You don't want to be negative on there and have create problems. I get that. But when you're constantly, it's just juicy fruit time. Everything's wonderful and delightful. And, my fair, and everybody, okay, picture time. Everybody smile. Every picture you see, everybody's smiling. The self, the, we love selfies because what a selfie we can do is we can actually see ourselves in there. And we can see how we're smiling and what we're presenting. And, oh, that's a good one. And that's, we want the world to see how beautiful we are, how lovely our families are. We just skip through the daisies. We're on vacation. It was sunny, drinking cocktails, having a party, a time of our lives. Everything is wonderful. I was like, oh, wow. Wish I had their life. Man, they, look at the fun they're having. Well, they went home that night and fought and argued, and, and someone did something stupid and said something they shouldn't have. And there's all kinds of garbage going on, all kinds of stuff under, under the surface. But, oh, no, we don't want anybody to know about that. Everybody's got to see the, the cover, the veneer, the outside. And, and we just want everybody to think everything's just, just fine. It's a lie. We're, we're just like this in so many ways. We play the hypocrite. And we're tempted by it, aren't we? Don't we want others to think well of us? And hey, people think well of you when you have a very shiny veneer and everything on the outside looks really good. I know that. I know they do because I'm one of them. And I, and I watch how people act and respond. Oh, I'm not dumb. I get it. I know that when everything looks great and you're smiling and you're happy and you have energy and everything's all polished on the outside, that's great. That's the good life right there. But I'm arguing, bickering, grumbling, complaining. I'm, I'm lazy. I don't do what I should do. I don't listen. I'm disobedient. I'm rebellious. I'm... I'm really not too honest most of the time. That's, that's normally what's going on in people's hearts and lives and that they're really struggling with, the issues they're dealing with. And Jesus and John will have none of it. And that's why they go right after the heart of the issue. Stop polishing the outside when you've got all kinds of issues on the inside. Stop trying to go around and make everybody think that you're all the, you've got everything all together and everything's, everything's great. Now, this doesn't mean you're that person who just goes and gives your garbage to everybody and now you flip it around and now everything on the inside is on the outside all the time for everybody. And I don't want to be around that person. And you realize, oh, that, 
that person doesn't have many friends. I don't want to do that because nobody likes to be around that. That's not what we're called to do. But at the same time, we are called to get honest before God and before the appropriate people to make things right. You can be joyful. You can be happy. That can be your life. But you have got to be constantly dealing with your heart and the sins of it. You've got to be brutally honest. If you're not brutally honest about what's going on here to God and to the appropriate people, you're not going to be doing well. But yet, aren't we tempted to make everybody think, even all the people that we shouldn't be making think, everybody, who, who, people's lives, people that we need to be involved with, people that we need to be um, dealing with, what we often do is we, we give them our ugly side, and then we don't, we don't make it right. We don't repent. We don't confess. We don't deal with it. You're going to be ugly to your spouse. Husbands and wives, right? You know that person. Look to your right and to your left, and you see your spouse. You say, boy, they know my ugly. They know my ugly. They know me when I'm angry, when I'm grumbly, when I'm whiny, when I'm pouty, when I'm lazy, when I'm indifferent. They know me when I just you know, want to suck my thumb and curl up in a, a, a ball in the corner. They know all of that. Yet what we need to do is even though if you're whiny, grumbly, if you're all of that, start confessing that. Don't just think it's all right to do that, to live there. Would you please forgive me for being such a whiny brat? Would you please forgive me for being such a rude jerk? Would you please forgive me for being so lazy? Would you please... We need to learn to be honest about the reality of how we're acting. It's not good. Confess it, deal with it, and be real with it. And then God will come and he can heal it. But until we get real with it and we just start... So here we have two lives... The shiny veneer for the outside. The brutal ugly for those on the inside. And that's how we live. That is like as ugly and gross as it gets. If we deal with those on the inside and we're dealing with our sins and we're making things right and we're confessing our sins and we're, and we're seeking by the grace of God to, to deal with issues, we can truly become beautiful people who then shine brightly on the outside. And it's not a fake veneer. It's because we're not we're dealing with the issues. But I'll tell you one thing. It is one ugly household. You've got the ugliest house on the block when you're all shiny on the ins- outside and you're all ugly on the inside. You better take care of the ugly on the inside. And repent and confess and deal with these issues. Otherwise... You're the ones that John the Baptist and Jesus go, you're nothing but a hypocrite. Total, full-on hypocrite. You're a liar. You're lying to yourself, you're lying to the world, and you will be exposed. You will. You either expose it now and deal with it, or God will expose it and deal with it. I guarantee it. 
This is the message of John's and Jesus' ministry, is to deal with these nasty hearts of ours and get us to the place where we're confessing, repenting, and turning, and we cling to God and to Jesus alone. Jesus is my, he's got to be my righteousness, he's got to be my strength, my life, my help, my everything. Jesus. But you won't cling to him until you're fully done with yourself. And you realize, I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I need Jesus in my private life. And I need him in my public life. Because without Jesus, I'm a hypocrite. I'm ugly in private, and I'm pretty in public. And it's not good. So may God have his way with us, and may we not become those ugly religious elite. They can become us who have it all nice on the outside and we're all ugly on the inside because we become professional hypocrites, not dealing with our hearts and not clinging to Jesus. May God have mercy. Amen. Father, we're thankful and we're grateful. So grateful. Because you're kind, you're good, and yet we are not. There is nothing good in us. When I look around in me, I don't see strength, I don't see wisdom, I don't see righteousness, I don't see goodness. I see the opposite. But when I look to you, I see all those things in abundance and overflowing. So, Father, help us all to see ourselves and to see Jesus and to cling to him with our whole hearts and look to him for everything that we need. For we ask it in his name. Amen.